is Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where we talk about true classics. I'm Jeff Bolmer. And I'm Pierre Frigon. Today's episode is another installment of Do Do Over, where we compare a movie and another one heavily inspired or based on or remade from it. We do this to see how two movies can tell the same story in similar or different ways. Also to see if either of them is doo-doo. It's in the name. In the past, we've paired such films as Yo Jimbo and A Fistful of Dollars in Season 2, Episode 14, and Citizen Kane and Mank in Season 2, Episode 15. In today's show, we are considering the 1958 Akira Kurosawa film The Hidden Fortress and the 1977 George Lucas film Star Wars, retroactively subtitled Episode 4, A New Hope. If you haven't seen either of these movies, be warned, there will be plenty of spoilers in this episode. The Hidden Fortress stars Toshiro Mifune, Misa Uehara, and Minoru Chiaki, and won the Silver Bear at the 9th Berlinale. It was also Kurosawa's first film in the widescreen Toho Scope format, which he would continue to use for the next decade. Star Wars stars Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, and Alec Guinness, and was nominated for 11 Oscars at the 50th Academy Awards, winning seven. It would go on to become one of the biggest franchises in the world, with the most recent release being episode six of season three of the TV show The Mandalorian, which premiered today, if you're listening to this on the day of the episode's release. Uh, Joining us today is Dakota Arsenault, one of the hosts of ContraZoom Pod, a film podcast in which he and film critic Rachel Ho, and occasionally other guests, go back and forth about film. They actually have their own series in which they review films and their remakes, called Make Remake, the most recent episode of which tackled the Kurosawa film Ikiru and its recent remake starring Bill Nye, Living. Hi, Dakota. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? You're going to be hearing from my lawyers. So how I got a question for you. Uh, how many times did you listen to, to a make remake to be able to write that script? Oh, you know me. There's there's nothing that gives me more life than uh, than theft. So a lot. Very quickly, I realized exactly what you were doing. <laughs> like, oh, I'm not surprised at all. Oh, you're gonna be you're gonna be very happy when you hear the full episode. That's that's only the second half of that bit. <laughs> That was incredible. I really like that. What was really funny is, uh, I guess going some behind the scenes here, is I made a joke in the last one because I did Akiru and Living, where I was like, oh man, this is like the third time I've done a Kurosawa make remake. We should just continue. And I, like the only other one that I'm aware of that's a remake was, or partially is, The Hidden Fortress being an inspiration for Star Wars. And Rachel's like, yeah, we should do that. And I was like, eh, yeah, but it's not really a remake, so I don't know if we should do that. And then sure enough, I get a message from you <laughs> like, hey, do you want to come on and talk about the Hidden Fortress in Star Wars? <laughs> I, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to cut you off at the pass. I didn't want you guys to get the opportunity to do that before, before we could steal the idea. <laughs> that was incredible. I really like that. <laughs> so, um, I mean, before we get into the movies, Dakota, do you want to say a little bit about yourself, a little bit about ContraZoom? 
<laughs> sure. Yeah, you uh, you did a excellent introduction there, and so I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, Rachel and I host ContraZoom Pod. Uh, it's a fun show. We uh, we just did our latest episode, which was our top ten movies of 2022. And you're probably thinking, "Hey, it's April. Why are you doing that now?" And uh, for that, I say, "Shut up." Um, <laughs> no, the the real reason is because the Oscars when you're death racing, you have so many movies you're catching up. And it started out when I first started the podcast, it was because most of the time you couldn't have access to these movies until the new year anyways, way past it. So I'd be like, well, I've got like a whole bunch of big movies I want to see. So I would always wait till the Oscar time. And it's just sort of kept up that way, you know, eight years later, basically. So yeah, that's the most recent episode of top 10 movies of the year. We're on a mini hiatus. We're coming right back. We're going to talk about things like the Canadian Screen Awards. We've got a couple A24 retrospectives coming up. we got lots of great uh, movie discussion. Oh, Hot Docs is coming up real soon. So I'm excited about that too. Uh, I'm excited to hear you talk at length about Brother. Uh, Rachel has done it many times. You keep dodging the question. So I'm excited to uh, hear you talk about it actually. <laughs> brother i feel like i talk about that movie non-stop yeah that was my number one movie spoiler alert uh is a fantastic canadian movie directed by clement virgo and if anyone has a chance to see it i i imagine it's gonna come to like crave or something eventually it is a phenomenal phenomenal film and it was really interesting i was just watching the last of us and i was like hey i recognize one of the guys in this and sure enough it was uh the younger brother in uh is in The Last of Us that plays the brother to the young deaf boy, if anyone has seen that. He's an excellent Canadian actor. Lamar Johnson, I believe is his name. J- joke's on me for leaving 20 minutes of that last episode unlistened to so far. Uh, <laughs> yes. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah, it's my number one movie. So before we get into like the similarities and differences between these movies, because I think that really is the most the most interesting thing about these I, I think as I was watching these movies, I was kind of expecting The Hidden Fortress to be like literally a blueprint for Star Wars. I've expected to watch The Hidden Fortress and then watch Star Wars and say, these movies are the same. And uh, they really weren't. So before we get into, I, I think there is like a lot of interesting uh, thematic parallels that I wrote up and I'm very excited to talk about. But before we get into those, I wanted to briefly summarize the plot of both of these movies. And I mostly wanted to delegate that work. I don't want to do it myself. So, uh, Pierre, do you want to tell us what The Hidden Fortress is about? Oh, boy. The Hidden Fortress is about a... Well, I guess it starts with a couple guys who essentially just want to be rich and have gold and not deal with anything that's happening. But... We are, I think it's coming off of a big war that happened and I can't remember any of the names, but there's a princess who is on the run as a result of that war, protected by a noble samurai and some close advisors. And basically their goal is to get the princess to around the, the enemy uh, back to some place where she's safe. And the samurai bumps into these two guys who just want gold. And basically, he finds out that they have a great plan to do that. And they kind of form a team to uh, escape the imperial Japanese army and traverse Japan or around the mountains to uh, a safe place. That's the best I can do. I'm sorry. Now that I think, now I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, wait, I don't know how accurate that is, but feel free to call me out on something I messed up there. And 
what I think is kind of interesting, and we'll talk about it. The Hidden Fortress, I would say the story isn't exactly like epic in scale. It's There's a lot that happens, but it's a relatively, it all takes place in a relatively small area featuring relatively few characters. Uh, I would not say the same of Star Wars, uh, which for anyone who hasn't seen it, or um, if anyone needs a refresher, Dakota, would you like to give that refresher on Star Wars? Sure. I imagine no one in the world has seen this little movie, but basically it's just your very typical Joseph Campbell hero's journey story. Everyone sort of knows that. Um, (laughs) But seriously, no, it's, you know, it's... um, Two robots are leaving. <laughs> Realizing that you trying to describe Star Wars for laymen sounds way more complicated <laughs> than it should be. There's a spaceship that is under attack, and so two robots take a hidden message and they escape the ship and crash land on a desert planet. And there they get bought by uh, some farmers, including a young boy named Luke. And from there, Luke meets a guy named Ben. And we have no idea why his name was ever Ben when his real name is Obi-Wan. Still baffles me to this day where everyone has these really ornate names. And they're like, yeah, this guy, his name is Ben. That's neither here nor there, I guess. And from there, Ben and Luke team up and they go and rescue the princess who has now been kidnapped by Darth Vader and Grand Moff Tarkin and uh, on the Death Star and they retrieve her and then they uh, use the plans that they had stolen earlier for the Death Star to figure out how to destroy it. And then from there we get uh, six, seven, eight more movies, about 20 different TV shows and a bunch of TV specials. Certainly the most glaring difference between these is that Hidden Fortress never spawned the most profitable media franchise of all time that isn't Pokemon. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that, that's the thing that's so fascinating to me. When you describe those two things, they're not like that similar. But at the same time, when I was watching The Hidden Fortress, I definitely saw some parallels that are going to give us content for sure. We're, we're 10 minutes in, and these are two movies we actually can talk about in the same episode, I think. It's sort of interesting because you you hear growing up in the film world of being like, oh yeah, George Lucas was really inspired by Akira Kurosawa and specifically A Hidden Fortress and, and John mm-hmm. Wayne and all those serials from the 50s and things like that, Flash Gordon. And obviously you watch Star Wars and if you know any of that sort of stuff, you can definitely see where he was pulling from like a wide array of different inspirations. Mm-hmm. But like you're sort of saying, like you watch Hidden Fortress and you're like, yeah, there's some similarities there. I, I, get, I get where he was like sort of spitballing from a little bit, but it is not exactly a, a one-to-one make remake in the sense of like the Magnificent Seven is a, just a Western version of the Seven Samurai sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, Pierre, when you were watching the Hidden Fortress, like, did you see a lot of parallels right out the gate or how did a hidden fortress yeah. work for you? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I really liked that it wasn't a straight up adaptation, but I, I do think that George, I'm just going to call him George. George uh, <laughs> took a lot of direct inspiration from that movie. And, and in terms of, I'd say like, I personally think a lot of the plot is kind of, at least the setup, the first act is very much ripped into Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say the the presence of, I think Luke and Han would be two characters that we don't really have any replacement for in, in the Hidden Fortress. But I think that was a big part of him taking this Japanese and obviously very famous Japanese movie and bringing it 
to the West and he brought in those Western elements of the hero's journey, which I don't know. I don't really know the backstory behind that, but you could, I, I feel like the first I've heard of it is that it was popularized in Lord, the Lord of the Rings books. I don't know if George was actually using those as a, as an influence, but um, I guess you could say Flash Gordon too. I don't know if, I don't know how similar Luke is to Flash Gordon um, or Han is, but I think he, he kind of meshed those two together and you get a lot much more cohesive, at least Western told story with a, with mm -hmm. a stronger character arc, I guess. I guess that is one of the things that really stood out to me with the Hidden Fortress is the main characters that we have there are these two bumbling guys uh, who who are great in their own right, but they sort of feel like the movie is happening around them, where mm -hmm. with Star Wars, the, the audience surrogate character is Luke Skywalker, who is the main character of the movie. And I think that's a really important distinction, and that's kind of what... I think that's kind of what makes Star Wars hit more for people in general, because it feels like a more active story with that, with that main character actually doing things. A lot of what I was fascinated by in the hidden fortress was the backstories of characters that we never hear about. Like there's mo most of the most interesting characters in that story have these clear long histories behind them that aren't part of the story. So we don't hear them. So what I'm kind of curious about is what are both of your history with Kurosawa movies? Like, have, have you guys seen any other ones or is this your first one? I've seen, I think we watched, did we watch that one together? together we, Jeff? Or not together, but we definitely watched Yojimbo Yo for the next, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the only one I've seen. And aside from that, I've seen Drunken Angel, Ikiru, and Seven Samurai. Okay. So yeah. not, not too many, but I've seen the big ones. Yeah. The biggest ones. So it's definitely really interesting watching The Hidden Fortress if you've seen several Kurosawa movies because it doesn't like it doesn't really seem like his typical fare, especially if you look at something like Seven Samurai, which is obviously his most notable one. I would say Yojimbo is probably his, his next most notable one where, yeah, his movies are very playful, but there's so many themes and layers to all of his movies. And then you kind of watch the hidden fortress and sort of much like star Wars and being like, Oh, Hey, this is, you know, just kind of a kid's movie. The hidden fortress very much kind of felt like a family movie. Yeah. It was a samurai mm -hmm. movie. Yeah. There was some action some people died, but it was pretty tame and bloodless compared to his other movies where there's always a comedic element in the violence, but there's also usually you feel the gravity in the weight of people's actions here. It didn't really sort of feel that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. And I think that like that might've been a bit what I was missing from the hidden fortress because I found that, uh, you know, the main characters of that, the general uh, whose name I have written down somewhere, Roku Rota, General yeah, Roshirota, Toshiro Mifune, and uh, I believe Susumu Fujita is the other actor playing Hyoe Tarokoro, another general. They clearly had this very intense history that uh, I would have liked to see more of. And it comes out in the most violent scenes of the movie, but even those are ultimately bloodless and kind of result in them becoming friends. Not really, but like sort of in the context of the movie, which is, uh, I guess, I guess very tame. I've only seen a few other Kurosawa movies, so uh, I can't put this fully in the context of the rest of his filmography. But yeah, it is, as, as you said, it's a very, it's a very tame, relatively bloodless movie. 
that, yeah. that fight scene, by the way, was I, I see now because a lot of people make fun of episode four for the really lame lightsaber fight. I, I see now what George was going for. I think Kurosawa had a much better way of doing it, though. I think the problem with the Obi-Wan Darth Vader scene is that they're just in a hallway. It's like a very lame environment. There's not really much tension building because they're just standing in a hallway. Whereas I thought Kurosawa, that fight scene was really good because there was very many reasons for them not to be fighting, if that makes sense. And I understood mm -hmm. why, like, very from a very visual way, like, because they were fighting with spears. And then also, I love that scene where they were, they're fighting through the tents and they both can't see each other. I love that stuff. That was really good. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was it was really cool to see. I think those that scene was very heavily inspired for like the first lightsaber fight for sure. Yeah, it was really interesting when um, towards the end of the movie when uh, you you see the 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 other general again and he's got like this giant scar on his face. And the first thing I know I saw thought when I saw that was like, man, he really looks like Darth Vader at the end of Return of the Jedi when he gets demasked, basically, because like his mm -hmm. hair is pulled back really tight. So he almost looked like he was bald. I thought he was bald at first. And he's got like this giant scar that goes across uh, his nose and under his eye. And both of his eyes are very sullen and black. And it just very much reminded me so much of like when Darth Vader takes his mask off finally. And it's sort of like this feeble, broken old man that's just like completely defeated. And that's sort of what he looked like. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's, uh, it's, it's cool that you bring that up because when I was watching The Hidden Fortress, I found that the biggest parallels I saw to Star Wars weren't specifically to the first one. I found a lot of scenes reminded me a lot of Star Wars, you know, episode one or episode mm -hmm. six or episode five. I, I felt when I was watching that movie, George Lucas wasn't so much making Star Wars as a remake of The Hidden Fortress, but you can tell by watching George Lucas movies in general, which in this case means the first six Star Wars movies, that like The Hidden Fortress is clearly one of his favorite movies because he keeps bringing in elements of it, even though nothing is necessarily a direct adaptation. Yeah, and it's sort of interesting. I was doing a little bit of reading afterwards after watching The Hidden Fortress and realizing how little it actually has in common with Star Wars and learning that Lucas originally wrote it as basically a space version of A Hidden Fortress, but then through so many rewrites over time, it became less and less similar to it, only keeping sort of key details. And I guess we'll kind of talk about what the, the main key detail was that they did keep, but then it eventually became a source of inspiration for other stuff. And I say the big, the think the biggest one was the, the princess decoy switcheroo that they do. They try to, they do it twice. They do it once, but they try to do it a second time almost. And very much remind me of episode one, when you've got like the, the Natalie Portman, Kira Knightley princess decoy switch, obviously it plays out very differently when they're like meeting the Gungans and she's like, I'm the real princess actually. But in Hidden hmm. Fortress, the decoy princess dies. They yeah. Well, the, the real princess and they're like ah yay we got her but in reality it wasn't her mm -hmm. yeah that's uh that that was the big thing that stood out to me as well i was like i was thinking about that when i was watching the four the um when i was watching episode four and um that just doesn't really come up in that but as soon as i saw it in the hidden fortress i was like oh this is episode one kira knightley yeah 
Uh, but I guess we could talk about maybe like the um, the biggest similarity, which seems to be in Hidden Fortress, the two main characters that we sort of get everything, we see everything from uh, Tahe and Matahishi, I think is how you say their names, basically are, are, are kind of supposed to be like R2-D2 and C-3PO in the sense of like they're both kind of bumbling fools. In reality, they're kind of like two C-3PO's, not a R2-D2 and C-3PO. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, because you, you watch Star Wars and, and the whole time C-3PO is like, oh, I'm scared. I don't want to do this. Oh, we shouldn't be doing this. Ah, we're going to get hurt. In The Hidden Fortress, those two characters, literally every scene, that's what they're doing. Like, ah, I'm scared. We shouldn't be doing this. Oh, let's just get the gold and run away. Oh, I don't know what to do. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> also, I, I'd say the the Han, maybe, it's like he it's like he took some of their elements to put into Han Solo too, because they were both. At every at every point, they were mostly just thinking about the gold. And, yeah, uh, they were. I, I'd say they were. That was kind of the arc. That's what it felt. It felt like they were going for that arc, but I I wouldn't really say they had much of a character arc. But yeah, I, I I think that was a good choice in terms of what Lucas was going for. I don't know much about uh, what's the director's name again. Kurosawa. Kurosawa. I don't know much about his movies. Are they usually like pessimistic? uh there's at least there's a level of pessimism like i would say in ikaru there's definitely a lot of pessimism in that okay although i would say that like there's always like a a hopeful element at the end so that the thing you're left with isn't necessarily pessimistic yeah but the characters themselves are it's it, it gets it gets pretty dark usually okay that's interesting yeah because I see. I see what Kurosawa. He he really wanted two people that literally did not have any investment in the story at all, and that was basically them. Whereas I guess R two D two has a bit of a heroic edge to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought that was like a really interesting parallel between, or I guess difference between the two is Kurosawa specifically brings in these two people that have essentially no connection to the story and who really have to like struggle to connect with any of the other characters at all where in star wars from the very beginning like first off the droids aren't audience surrogate characters and they're given more connection to the story right away they're not like you could probably take out c-3po and r2d2 and find a way to work in princess leia without them but at the same time like they're the way that Luke is brought into the Rebel Alliance. And um, they feel much more a part of the story for the whole time and actively so than um, Kurosawa's Marashichi and Tahe, who, you know, they almost feel like the whole time, you know, they were scheduled, but they weren't supposed to be here today. <laughs> yeah. Are we going to talk about how uh, Toshiro Mifune's thick thighs were saving peasants' lives? Because he came in hot with those short shorts and was rocking them the whole movie. He, I mean, those barely qualify as shorts. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, he's hiking up those hills. I'm like, I can see up your shorts, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, he comes in wearing no pants, uh, ready to go. he, He makes an entrance for sure. He he's just got like this such a strong masculine energy where you're just instantly drawn to him being like, Ooh, I'm going to follow this guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I actually thought it was, it, it spoke a lot more to his character because 
he's someone that I would assume is like supposed to be like a a very noble warrior, right? And I don't know what they were supposed to be dressed in as at the time for a samurai, but he was. I mean, I guess he was. The point is, he wasn't supposed to be dressed as a samurai because he was in hiding. But I, I thought it was cool to see such a noble warrior just be in such an embarrassing outfit. I thought it. I thought it made his character a lot more relatable, while also still it almost kind of makes him more uh, awe inspiring, I guess, because he's able to do all this while I guess having having his pants right up his crotch of it. <laughs> In every scene. Pierre, do you often wear the shortest shorts possible when rescuing princesses? No, especially not when riding horses like he does too. <laughs> I can't believe can't believe how much that would hurt. And he's and he's killing people while doing it. So I, I think that's pretty impressive. He's killing it while killing people. Exactly, yeah. I will say that 100% of the times that I have rescued a princess, that has been my outfit. So... <laughs> So I wrote down here in, in, in my document, I wrote down that like I had, I saw Rokurota Makabe, the character played by Toshiro Mifune. I saw him as a direct parallel to Obi-Wan Kenobi. Am I crazy for that? Or did you guys get the same basic impression? No. Yeah. It's yeah. I think he's probably the closest analogy to, to Obi-Wan. Like, He's kind of, he almost seems like a mix between Luke Han and Obi-Wan in terms of like they're rescuing the princess. There's certain character traits. I wouldn't say the character traits of Luke, but you know, the the young energetic warrior there to go and get and save the princess sort of thing. Uh, he sort of has that vibe and then the sort of bad boy-ness that Han Solo has and then the sage wisdom and trusted guardian that Obi-Wan Kenobi is. So it kind of seems like a little bit of all, all three of the male characters characters but definitely if you were to say one of them it would probably be closest to obi-wan pierre yeah i i'd agree i i agree i know i know george when he was coming up with like the jedi and the force he took from like a lot of different inspirations but i think the obvious one has always been the samurai and uh you can you can see you can see it come through here especially with how he, he like he wasn't just a warrior he was fighting very smart i'd say like the jedi mind trick was referenced in the or i mean the the jedi mind trick references how he was able to trick the guards uh at that checkpoint in the movie mm -hmm. um obviously in the movie he doesn't have the force so he he did it in a lot more of a an interesting way but uh there, that was referenced i also think um the the idea of trusting supposed idiots as the samurai did in hidden fortress is something obi-wan I get, it's not something I noticed before, but it's something I did notice after watching The Hidden Fortress is that Obi-Wan is very trusting towards people that, I, I mean, Luke was very dismissive of Han and Chewie at the start, and he calls their ship a piece of junk. And uh, I think he was sort of dismissive of like R2-D2 and C-3PO before he saw the message too. And Obi-Wan in episode four is always very intent on listening to anyone that someone might deem a, a foolish person in star wars at least in episode four mm -hmm. which i thought were it's really cool traits to take it's a lot of like 
this is a very interesting scene. What if it was like this, but you know, we changed it slightly. And that's sort of where you can like, you could sort of see the, the crumbs of a little bit and all the stuff, like the, the checkpoints you're talking about, the same thing in, in Hand Fortress when they're trying to get into enemy territory and they've got all this gold on their back. And so instead of just hoping that they don't get checked, they're like, hey, we found this piece of gold. Do you want it? We don't know where it came from. And then they're like, no, it's ours now. I'm like, well, I want it back. I'm like, no, no, it's ours. Get out of here. And so like he used reverse psychology on it. So it's like, it's like that. And then like, how do you use that? And then update it ever so slightly. And that's how you get like the force scene that you're talking about where he's like, Oh, these are not the droids you're looking for. Oh, we're not the ones you're looking for. We should let, let us go. And so you get that sort yeah. of scene where it's basically pretty similar on the surface. If you're to break down what the actual beat is that what's the character motivation, what's their obstacle, what's their goal, how do they overcome it? But the dialogue is different enough that it doesn't seem like it's identical. And I guess like, I wouldn't so much call it a major theme of the movie, but reverse psychology comes up quite a few times in the hidden fortress and like a a little bit in star Wars. It's definitely in that one scene we're mentioning, but I know there's uh, in, in the hidden fortress, there's a specific scene where they're talking about how to get the princess across the border. And before she comes into the room, uh, they t- they're they're like, well, she'll never go for this. What if we uh, what if we just tell her that you know, oh, only an idiot wouldn't do. Only an idiot would do this. <laughs> so, the other the other thing. Yeah. So uh, you know, let's let's try that. And then she comes in, and they just use very blatant reverse psychology on her, which shockingly like comes up quite a few times in the hidden fortress but it also works because they're like oh well i'll bet you couldn't go as a mute for a day and she's like well i understand you're using hidden you're using reverse psychology but i'm gonna call your bluff anyway and i'm gonna be a mute for like five days and you're not gonna be able to do anything about it yeah i remember george likes really liked the idea of uh of, of the warrior that doesn't have to fight or seemingly doesn't have to fight um Mm -hmm. and he did that with ben in the episode four and then he kind of took that concept and really stretched it with yoda in episode five but i i think it's it's a cool play on like the the stereotypical warrior that we see in movies i guess but um you know i I feel like well actually i don't know if that was a japanese thing but you know to be in such an important role i guess he was a general right he also obviously would have to be extremely intelligent Mm -hmm. Um, while also being a great warrior and i feel like when you're smart and a warrior you try not to fight when you can and i think he played into that archetype archetype very well yeah it's sort of a very silly thing but uh the 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 two peasants in hidden fortress kind of also remind me a little bit of the characters is getting very esoteric uh of the the play waiting for godot i don't know if anyone's sort of familiar with that i'm deep reaching deep into uh my my theater background but essentially, you've got these two idiot characters who believe they are waiting for someone to show up, and this person never shows up. Um, mm-hmm. But they believe that they can't leave this waiting spot for fear. Of, as soon as they leave, that's when he'll show up. So the whole thing is they're basically stuck in purgatory. But they're they're both trying to be the leader, and they're both arguing with each other about who knows what's best to do, and who's the smarter one, and who's the dumb one. And and the two peasant characters in Hidden Fortress really gave off a strong Godot energy. Mm-hmm. This this might feel like I'm sidetracking off of that, but this sort of that sort of reminded me of something I keep bringing up, probably. But I thought it was just so interesting that 
in the Hidden Fortress, we've got those two characters that are plucked out of their world, which is, I mean, I mean, kind of. They're sort of, they're introduced sort of within the context of this war or battle that's going on, but then they get out of it. And then they're sort of brought back into it, even though they clearly like don't belong there and don't want to be there. And at the very end of the movie, they sort of exit that world and go on with some other life, probably. Hard to say for sure, because the movie ends. But this whole two-hour adventure is this strange thing that they were brought into and then sort of like they were able to leave from. And I think that like, I mean, part of the reason that Star Wars has endeared itself to so many people, among other things, uh, when Luke is brought into this world that he's not a part of, or that he wasn't originally a part of, he sort of ends up, I mean, he ends up staying there, but he ends up in a, a sort of a leadership position. And at the end of that movie, at the end of Star Wars, I guess the first Star Wars movie could end where it does and never have a sequel. And it would be sort of a satisfying ending, but he's clearly like in that world now. He's not allowed to just like leave He's, he's now a part of this. He's sort of brought into something. And I thought that, um, I mean, for one thing, that's a much better way to build a sequel or to build up to a sequel. But I just thought that it was, um, I thought it was kind of interesting that like Akira Kurosawa is very interested in telling this small story that is sort of like an episode in these characters' lives where George Lucas is more interested in sort of whether or not he um, he knew originally that this was going to become a massive series, he's very much interested in telling a story that he can continue for however long because it's a story that is clearly just the beginning of something. Yeah, are we? Do we want to talk about Star Wars a bit more in depth now, or or, or do we want to stay on? Oh, focus? Uh, for sure, for sure. Let's yeah. talk about Star Wars. I, I I was surprised. It's been a while since I've seen it. It's just sort of funny how not self-contained because you can you can clearly tell that lucas is, is definitely planning on continuing the stories but how quaint everything is like it really does feel like just your average typical 70s british film which is sort of funny obviously lucas is american but there's so many british actors in this it just sort of feels like it's just a brit uh, your, your standard british you know drama <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what I noticed as well is there's so many things in there that would eventually be retconned or readdressed and or yeah. like put into different contexts. But there's so many things in Star Wars Episode Four that uh, feel like they're meant to have a little more to them, but not necessarily that we're ever supposed to find out what that is. Like there's a scene, I've been rewatching it today over and over again, and I've been rewatching it in different versions. So pardon me if I uh, didn't, if I'm not talking about the specific version you guys watched, because I know this movie exists in like a million different versions. But there's a scene where Han Solo is talking to Jabba the Hutt. And in the version that I saw, not the version that I watched as the movie, but the version I've been rewatching all day, Jabba the Hutt is just like a dude with him. He's basically just a mafia boss and he's wearing like nobles clothes. And he's talking about like how, you know, how Han Solo, he's, he's, he's done, he's done him over too many times. And like, this is the last time, but soon coming up soon, he's going to, Han Solo is either going to pay him respects or they're going to be done. 
for real this time. And in the scene that I keep watching, he's just a guy that Harrison Ford is interacting with. And like later, obviously that would be retconned to Jabba the Hutt being a big slug. But, you know, there's the scene, even in the version that is available to watch, where I think I think at the end of the scene, Harrison Ford says Jabba is a wonderful human being, which <laughs> makes no sense if Jabba the Hutt is a slug. And like, that's the most emblematic thing, but there's so many tiny details in this movie that were, I'm sure were thought through because it's a very good script, but definitely weren't thought through in the context of this is going to be a series that goes on for 50 years because there's so many things that are just like, that later on will be just sort of like ignored in later movies. The other thing that, that, definitely stood out to me was every single time that Alec Guinness addresses Darth Vader as Darth, <laughs> as if it's just a name instead of a title, yeah. which, you know, later on, that's not a name. That's a title. I mean, as, yeah. as early as episode five, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember how it works out, but yeah, it's, it's, it is like that. I hate the CGI that they added into it when they cha- like changing Jabba to the actual hut and like, there's several scenes when they're in Mos Eisley and they, there's clearly CGI characters just added in to make it look more populated. It looks mm-hmm. so bad. It looks it looks terrible. And I hate that they added that in. I think it was the, the 90s, the VHS release is when they added all that stuff in. And I guess that's sort of become the de facto official version of the movies because that's also when they tried to change who shot first in the Han or Greedo sort of nonsense. Uh, mm-hmm. And the version I watch, which is the one on Disney Plus, it looks like they shoot at the exact same time. So I think that's the consolation that they ended up on. But yeah, wow, I I cannot get over how bad that CGI has aged compared to the rest of the movie. Because like, there's a lot of the stuff where you're like, oh yeah, this is clearly what they were working with at the time. It looks good for what they're they're doing, making the best of the budget, all that sort of stuff. And then here's this really terrible CGI Jabba the Hut that we're just gonna throw in. Especially in the context of this episode, I really, really wish I could have seen a theatrical version of this because the point of this episode isn't to talk about Star Wars and what it's become. It's to talk about how a 1958 movie inspired a 1977 movie. And when that 1977 movie was retouched in 1997, it takes away from that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I personally, I don't mind that. I mean, yeah, the CGI in Moss Eisley is kind of bad. <laughs> the one scene where, isn't it like the camera's just completely overtaken by like a some dinosaur-looking? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's just like very obviously not supposed to be there, and it looks ugly too. I actually, I don't mind the Jabba scene if you if you look at it in the con, like if if it was just a standalone movie, it's I I understand why it was a deleted scene at first because it doesn't really give us anything that we don't know already from Greedo but I guess given the larger context if I was for the first time watching this I think it'd be cool to you know see in episode six who this job of the hut is because they reference him a lot in four and five so mm-hmm. it's kind of nice to if I was a first time fan watch, binge watching this series it'd be kind of nice to see who this job of the hut is uh, before episode six because he's he's almost like this as existential threat to Han that you never see until episode six without that scene. So mm-hmm. I don't mind that. There's, there's a couple other, I can't remember what other, other stuff was that bad, but yeah, I I'd say 
in general. I, I'd say a, a lot of stuff was touched up in the first act too, because it's definitely probably the act that aged the worst. Maybe that's why George was touching it up a lot. It's paced very, I, I shouldn't say badly, it's aged poorly, but it, it's paced very, very differently compared to um, most modern day blockbusters, at least, especially in the 90s, whenever it was touched up. So I could see why George might be insecure about that act of it. But I think that, I don't know if that was because he was taking so much of the first act from Kurosawa or if movies in the 70s, for the most part, were very slow in the first act too. Yeah, I guess like, I don't know too much, but I thought for me, the pacing of the first and the second acts especially worked really well. It was the third act that kind of got me a bit because that felt... really. It, it felt almost tacked on. I know it wasn't. Like most of the important stuff happens in the third act, but everything after Obi-Wan's death in this movie to me was like, oh damn, well the movie ended. I guess we'll see you guys in the next one. But there was still like an hour left. It was actually less than that because I had paused it to go to the bathroom and I was like, wow, they're they're still trying to escape off the Death Star. I pause it. I'm like, there's 25 minutes left of this movie. Don't they still have to do the whole attack stuff? That happens very quickly. And then oh, the wow. coda at the end of it is like like less than a two minute scene of them, you know, at the ceremony sort of thing. It, it all goes very quickly, surprisingly. I think it's just like our memory of like, you know, the big... Death Star battle sequence is like the main centerpiece of the movie and that's the whole third act. In reality, it it is only like half an hour total, that whole like section after they escape. Mm-hmm. Oops. <laughs> it, it, feel, it feels longer. It does. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think yeah. actually I think the third act uh, I don't know if they did they touch that up. They probably touched it CGI wise. I can't think of anything they added in the It doesn't look too egregious. Yeah, um. it's it's not as it's not as bad as the most Eisley drafts. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah, um, I don't know. I I thought the third act. I still think the third act is is really really well done, despite you know a lot of the CGI or a lot of the effects maybe not aging as well as it could have. But it looks but consistent. That, like that moment when Han comes in. Yeah, yeah, it looks very consistent too. But like that moment when Han comes in, like like that's when I like tr- feel like I truly understand why people kept watching that movie over and over again is because that's a very very well edited scene, and I, I can't believe they they pulled it off because I think it's I, I still think it's like like the third act of Star Wars is is still much much better uh, executed than the majority of blockbusters, even though they get to use Star Wars as like a template for how to do their third acts. So mm-hmm. I guess like. Moving back a little bit, do you guys remember the third act of the Hidden Fortress? <laughs> in, in what regards? Well, I'm I'm just thinking because like as I'm thinking about this with the Hidden Fortress, I didn't get fully the same feeling. But as soon as the fight happens, uh, the duel between Rokurota and Hyoe that is essentially analogous to the duel between Obi Wan and Darth Vader. I'm not going to say that's where the movie ends for me, but after that, I have a much hazier memory of the movie because like, that's definitely to me, that's like the climax of the movie. And then after that, there are still things that happen, but it's not as, uh, I think, I think they go to a big bonfire, which is like thematic, but, uh, it, it's, it's a lot harder for me to remember. <laughs> no, I think that was before. No, wait. No, you're no right. the that bonfire after, is yeah. definitely after. 
Yeah, okay. I don't know the the. It, it's definitely not structured like most Western movies. I I would say because you're right. It, the fight between him between the two guys is like definitely like the almost like a the cl- climactic point in the movie. But it happens. Mm-hmm. I want to say like halfway through. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't really resolve in any way because I I feel like the point of that scene was to say like oh these guys are going to meet again later in the movie. But when they do, the the circumstances are are very different, and it's not a fight; it's it's more of a conversation. It's also weird that like when the the fight between Obi Wan and Darth Vader is like built up to the first time we see Obi Wan, he's talking about Darth Vader, and we've seen Darth Vader early in the movie. Like he's one of the first people we see. We meet him before Obi Wan, so by the time they're actually meeting in a fight. Like, we know both of these characters, where with the fight between Rokurota and Hyoei, that's the first time we really see and interact with Hyoei. And, like, we get any exposition about what their history is, we get right there. It's done really well, but, like, that's the first time we really see them interact with each other. And all of their relationship, which, again, is, like, my favorite in that movie starts there and like that that's where like everything is built off of later yeah i that's why i can't really just divide this movie the hidden fortress into acts because like the third act just kind of or the end of the movie just kind of resolves almost off screen Mm -hmm. i want to say in a way and it's it's very confusing and it it's weird because i feel like there was a lot of tension building up towards something that never really comes yeah, the Hidden Fortress definitely sort of feels a bit of a, a product of its time. Where if you watch, if you watch enough movies from like the the fifties and earlier, it's like big climax is coming, very interesting, lots of lots of tension, lots of building up, building up, building up, and the movie is over. It's like the, the you, yeah. you get you you figure out what, where they resolve at, and then suddenly it's like, and that's the end. Uh, everyone lives happily ever after, or whatever. We don't know. Who cares? Whereas now it's it's necessary for every single movie that once a movie climaxes and we get to the revelation of whatever it is, there's the resolution of the conflict, and then it's like, okay, so how do these characters feel in the aftermath of this? So whether good or bad, we always sort of know where they sort of stand. In Hidden Fortress, yeah, we get a little bit with the peasants, and that's maybe the the biggest character change is uh, they they see the the princess reclaim her throne, and uh, they see the general in full samurai gear, and they're given some gold as a thank you, and neither of them want to take it. Whereas at the beginning of the movie, they're literally willing to rob each other for their own uh, self indulgence, and here in the op- it's the opposite where they're like, "Here, you take it." No, 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 it's okay. You take it. No, 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 you take it. And so we get a little bit. Of that that and that's just sort of the end credit whereas i think if this movie was made again we'd see you know how did the princess regain control of her land how did her people come back together was she able to raise an army was she able to attack the other clans all that sort of stuff even if we're just told that it happened we'll still get told that here just like and here the princess is back in her castle the end but i think it's also weird like did that feel like an ending to you guys? I have a lot to say about that scene. That's I, I wrote in my notes uh, that you guys can probably see. I wrote in bold many times about that scene. It's definitely, for me, the most fascinating scene in the movie. But like, 
Did you guys feel like it felt like an ending? It just sort of felt like because I've watched enough movies from the 50s, I'm used to those type of endings, but they still surprise me every single time where you're just like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, and what's going to happen next? Oh, and it's the end and there's not even end credits. It's just literally the movie is over. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I'm used to it, but also it catches me off guard every time. Mm-hmm. I guess I'd say it feels like it feels very in tone with the movie, I guess. Because I'd yeah. say I don't know. Yeah, the way he the way he directs is very. It's like mystical. I don't know. Say it's very patient. Yes. It's kind of it's like kind of intriguing. One one of the things I I noticed, I know I actually I noticed this with the Ojimbo too, and I love this about Kurosawa. Is he's very patient with his shots, and um. There's a lot of moments where he'll just, I think he'll just let things linger. And I love that little, I don't know who composed the movie, but there's that little flute thing, flute sound mm, that you'll kind of get in so the background. Good, yeah. And um, that that flute thing reminds me a lot of the start of Star Wars too. I think John Williams maybe watched that movie and took some sonic cues from it as well. But so it feels very fairy tale-esque, right? And I feel like because of that, the ending... Like it's not, it doesn't feel like the typical movie where I needed that ending because it was, it was actually really nice to see like, oh, so like, even though we didn't get like a, I don't know, a two years later, like screenshot mm-hmm. or something, we, we were surprised by, oh, it turns out they did make it and they're all doing good. And that's like mm-hmm. a really happy ending. Right. And I guess like it would have been nice to see that happen, but in a way it, it kind of makes you happier knowing that it just all worked out, you know? And that, um, and those two guys are still the same people they were at the start of the movie. Or I guess they changed a bit too, where they're they're saying you can have the gold, you know. Yeah. So, actually, I I kind of want to see more movies like that where they don't use the typical three act structure because it was it was odd how little how anticlimactic it was, yet also felt like a very sweet ending to a movie and made it the movie as a whole made sense with that ending. Uh, really quick, the composer of The Hidden Fortress was Masaru Sato, who also did compose Yojimbo. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, nice. I, I assume Kurosawa worked with a lot of the same people. That was mostly because he was working out of the Toho studio. So you have the same people working over and over again, same as his actors. Like, he's got the same, I notice at least four or five different actors that I've seen in other Kurosawa movies. He uses the same people over and over again. So, yeah, no surprise there. I don't think I've seen a single Kurosawa movie that didn't have Toshiro Mifune in it. And they they exist, but all of the ones that I've seen have had him as one of the main characters, if not the main character. Well, you've seen Ikaru, which he's not in that. But, oh, true. But yeah. the old general, it is, so the one in the cave that's like talking about using reverse psychology, that's the main guy from Ikaru. Yes, I noticed him. Yeah. Who's like a legendary Japanese actor. So it feels weird to specifically bring up another Japanese movie in reference to this. The ending of this movie sort of makes me feel like this whole thing, the whole of the Hidden Fortress was an episode in the lives of these two people who maybe will never think about it again. Like it's an important thing that happened to them, but it's not like they're never going to see that general again. Or the princess, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it reminds me of a lot of things. The specific example that comes to mind is Spirited Away, where at the end, you know, the events of Spirited Away weren't a dream, 
but she's never going to interact with that world again. Mm-hmm. She has had this strange thing that's happened and now she's out of that. And now she lives her life after having this crazy experience. You know, that's what strikes me the most. That's to me probably the biggest difference between the hidden fortress and star Wars is when the hidden fortress is done, you know, Tahe and Marashichi go their separate ways from the general and are never going to see that again. You know, at the end, they could they could be walking down those stairs and probably at some point one of them goes, well, that was a weird thing that happened, wasn't it? Yeah, it almost seemed like it could have they could make an entire series of movies based on those two characters and just like what sort of wacky adventures do they get themselves into? Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of Yojimbo and Sanjiro, uh, how those are kind of supposed Sanjiro is in a way a sequel to Yojimbo but like it's so disconnected from Yojimbo that technically you can you can watch them completely separately and technically there's not really any guarantee that the character is even the same it's just he might as well be because he's the man with no name so he might as well be the same character because he's playing him the same way and uh, he's played by the same guy, so yeah, I I do like the, that concept too. I think it it makes the movie rely a lot more on just the the general experience of watching the movie rather than having each point in the movie necessarily be like a building block to that climax, if that makes sense. And uh, I I think it's results in I want to say kind of like a more relaxing movie experience. There wasn't really any points in the movie where I was like, I felt really tense, except for that one scene, actually, where when during this, the spear fight, mm-hmm. um, it's a very, it's a very calming movie to watch, honestly, and mystical. I like the vibe it sets. It's like shockingly low stakes, considering, <laughs> considering what yeah. the movie's about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder if with Star Wars, that was maybe the original attempt too, because like, like you said, it ends very, very quickly. Like there's, there's very, after the Death Star blows up, there's very little like epilogue to the story. Just it ends. And I feel like that concept George liked in terms of, uh, he wanted, like there was so much going on around the movie where it was like, you know, the empire and the rebels fighting, it was a galactic civil war, but in the end it was just a self-contained story and, we didn't really need to see what the characters were going to do next. Like that story was whole, um, even though we did see, see what they did next in a lot of different yeah. ways eventually. But that that's what that the first Star Wars feels like too, is that it doesn't really matter about nothing else really matters outside of that story, except for that cute little tale. And that makes it feel yeah. like a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. It's sort of funny. I feel like basically watching all these different Kurosawa movies one because I'm enjoying them but two also just because I've been doing them for the podcast how Kurosawa basically himself was an ouroboros of like a snake eating its own tail because Kurosawa would make these you know feudal samurai movies and then that influenced John Wayne who is like oh man I'm gonna do that but I'm gonna make them westerns and action movies and stuff like that and then Kurosawa would be like oh man I love what this John Wayne guy is doing I'm gonna do my own similar like thing like that but make it back into samurai movies and back and forth and back and forth and you can see all the different 
influences of the directors of like the new Hollywood, uh, the golden era sort of thing of both the golden era and new Hollywood sort of looking at Kurosawa and being like, man, this guy, this guy just knows how to craft stories and stage action sequences and all this sort of stuff. We, I, I feel like we've, we've referenced like two dozen different movies and moments of like, hey, this kind of feels like this and this and this. And we're just talking about two movies here. One movie mm-hmm. from Kurosawa. And and I know, Jeff, now you've brought up your Jimbo a couple times and stuff like that. And if we were to talk about Seven Samurai and all that other stuff and just realizing just how influential. Kurosawa is, is obviously one of my all-time favorite directors, but I also believe he might be the most influential as well in terms of influencing other filmmakers. Mm-hmm. When I was watching The Hidden Fortress, the thing that stuck out to me most was despite the fact that Star Wars A New Hope isn't like a direct remake of it, you can tell by watching all of George Lucas's Star Wars movies, like 4, 5, 6, 1, 2, 3, you can tell by watching those that clearly The Hidden Fortress is one of his favorite movies. Because Mm -hmm. when I was watching The Hidden Fortress, there's so many things that happen in that movie that don't happen in Star Wars A New Hope, but that maybe come back in like, or or like referenced or sort of like done in George Lucas's own way later. George Lucas is drawing bits and pieces from it wherever he can, because he clearly likes this movie a lot. And he's one of a million directors that does that, but it's, it's very clear, um, you know, when you see the movie that influenced him, versus his own movies and you can see that influence and then there's like if anyone has seen the mandalorian in the first season there's an entire episode that's basically just the plot of seven samurai of when he goes to the village and basically trains all the the village people how to fight back against this you know the rival landlords or whatever it is they're coming to take their crops literally beat for beat it's the the the, pro, the the premise of of Seven Samurai, and you you look at that and you wonder you you think in your head you're like okay is this just being like once again Kurosawa was influencing uh, the Star Wars universe or is it John Favreau and I forget the the other guy's name who runs Mandalorian Dave Filoni um, yeah if they're just like hey George Lucas was massively inspired by Kurosawa what if we use the same inspiration and how do we you know influence that onto our show so it could be either one of like a direct inspiration of why they decided to basically do it an episode based on seven samurai. I'm pretty sure that there's an episode of the Mandalorian in season one as well. Might've been the first episode of season two. I can't rightly remember, but it has Timothy Oliphant in it and it's basically Yojimbo. Oh yeah. hundred like, percent. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not beat for beat, but very close. Because he he feels very much like the Clint Eastwood character of the, the man with no name trilogy, which is a, direct remake of yojimbo (laughs) yeah exactly i think dave filoni is a big fan of i remember i watched his the animated star wars show and there's like two or three episodes that are also basically the plot of the seven samurai too so and i'm sure there's other other it's not the first time like a bug's life is is just the seven samurai Oh yeah, I guess it is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's it's a really good, like it's a very consistent tale. You can tell it very similarly, but give it different settings and it's it's almost always like a, a pretty solid watch, I'd say. Honestly, from how influential Seven Samurai has been on movies in general, I'm shocked that's not like a fable. Yeah. It definitely has like a very uh archetypal uh feel to it. 
where you, mm-hmm. you have all the different character archetypes and they're so fleshed out in that movie. Pierre, you haven't seen it yet. You really should watch it. It's, no. it's a long movie. It's over three hours, but it does not feel like it. And it features arguably, I think, the greatest fight scene I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, and it all takes place in the rain and you never lose track of anyone. It's incredible. Oh, that's cool. When was it made? What year was it? 57, I think it was. Oh, was it like right before The Hidden Fortress? Yeah, I think so. Oh, wow. I remember thinking The Hidden Fortress is 54. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm the, the fight the fights in The Hidden Fortress were mostly really, other than the, the, the spear fight, like it looked very kitty like the samurai guy basically just ran at people and went like "Ah," and then they died and then he'd move to the next guy (laughs) yeah i think that was part of what you you said it was it was definitely much more family or uh, like a simple tale right so it makes sense that he would really simplify the fighting to almost like how a kid would fight yeah, was, I was doing a bit of reading, and it sounds like uh, the last like three or four movies he had made beforehand had been like really artistic and uh, difficult to understand its themes and stuff like that. So he had done stuff like Rashomon and, and Seven Samurai, where they're very dense films. And he wanted to repay Toho, who had given him all this money and support behind him and never really questioned his judgment calls. Uh, and they're like, you know what? I'm going to just do a nice family movie that's going to be a real banger. You're going to make a ton of money off of this thing. It's going to be incredible. And sure enough, that's what it was. This was basically just like his blockbuster. His uh, his last five films before The Hidden Fortress were in reverse order. The Lower Depths, Throne of Blood, I Live in Fear, Seven Samurai, and Ikiru. Which, yeah. <laughs> like, I've only seen two of those. And I only really know very much about three of those. And like, all the ones that I know about of those are very, uh, they're, they're a lot denser. They're a lot more, uh, they're a lot more of thinkers than, than the hidden fortress is. Throne of blood is just, uh, Macbeth. Uh, it's his version of Macbeth set in a samurai world. Also absolutely incredible. If you're familiar with Macbeth, you'll, you'll have no problem understanding Mm. it, but it's really (laughs) good. Mm. Well, it's cool that he was, uh, cause I, I know with George Lucas, he also made star Wars because he was kind of in a, a, a tight spot i guess monetarily and he needed to make a he wanted to make a very family friendly movie mm-hmm. that would hopefully make him a decent amount of money had george lucas made a movie before this or like i mean i guess he'd made thx but was he, that the only one it also made american graffiti right okay yeah, that, that was really which yeah. the luke character feels like he could have just been lifted directly out of the american graffiti world <laughs> yeah. yes Right like, down to the hair. Equal. Yeah. <laughs> Even with yeah. like, oh, that, that those first couple scenes with Luke, I, I have a really tough time watching where he's got the whiny voice still. It's pretty cringy, like, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to go play with my friends. In the, I want to go like, flying, no Uncle Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah, THX, I remember he, I can't remember, I think it was him, him and, Francis Coppola made their own studio and then he made THX with that studio and then it bankrupted the studio. <laughs> so he had to, he had to make American graffiti, which was also like a very, well, I mean, it was a very big movie, obviously. And um, I think influential as well in its own right, but it was a, it was a lot, definitely a lot less artistic than he wanted to do at the time. If you watch, I haven't seen THX, but it looks really weird. 
So THX is I, weird. I like, yeah, okay. I don't necessarily think it's weird in that good of a way either. I guess I haven't seen it in probably 10 years now, but I remember watching it and being like, no, I get it. It's just, you know, <laughs> not, not great. Yeah. It, it is really interesting. I wonder what his, like George, like George Lucas's career would have been like without Star Wars. Cause it, it is really cool that he went, you know, he made this really artsy movie, the bomb. He's like, okay, I'm going to make a movie that'll make, make money and be acceptable by people. And then he made like probably one of the, the biggest uh, or well, most well-known uh, coming of age slash comedy movies that probably went on to influence a bunch of other people as well. And then he made star Wars and then he just never really made a movie other than star Wars again. But it would have been like, maybe if star Wars wasn't as big as it was to see like what else he could have done making more original stuff. Yeah, yeah, the 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 sort of myth, mythos of George Lucas is really weird. And like you look back at why the original trilogy was so successful is because he didn't have a lot of power in this from the studio. And so he had to sort of answer to a lot of people. So a lot of the look and feel of Star Wars is because they were sort of foisted upon him by the studio, the the, the production designers, the art directors, the sound, all that sort of stuff was mostly there because the studio was like, yeah, great. You can write the script and stuff like that, but you know, you have to leave this other stuff to the professionals. And so he, he didn't really, he wasn't able to argue with them. And apparently his wife at the time, she came between the two Lucas and the, in the studio basically, and was able to like set up the dialogue of like, Hey George, this is what you accomplished. That's great. But you know, you have to let these people do their job and this is how they're, they're going to do and all that sort of stuff. And then he ended up getting divorced after the original trilogy. And so the prequels came along and he had all this power. And then you see what George Lucas's unfiltered vision looks like. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually amazing uh, how much, like, I, I don't know if you guys saw that video uh, uh, on, I can't remember what, who it's by, Rocket Film Rocket Film Studio or something. They talk about how Star Wars was edited completely differently by, by, his, by his wife, Marcia Lucas, um, when it was basically done and restructured the third act, and that really, like, saved the movie. Because I can't imagine it the way it was originally intended being that exciting yeah. well she won an, an oscar for the for editing that movie um and i don't know when they broke up but um it, like i think that's also a really big factor of how much uh creative inspiration she gave george to at the time mm-hmm. yeah i always think it's fascinating to look back and like see i mean he didn't even direct any of the star any of the original trilogy after the first one Mm-hmm. Which is always super weird to me because, you know, it's so it's so associ- it's so synonymous with with him as a filmmaker. <laughs> well, I think it makes sense. I I think it's very obvious he's much more. I want to say like creatively inclined than he ended up being. You know, like I think Star Wars kind of boxed him in. Where I think his original vision was okay. I'll make the first movie, and then when it did well, he's like, okay, I'll stay as like kind of a like a producer, like a Kevin Feige-esque person that can oversee that stuff and kind of give it mm-hmm. a general direction while in the meantime, he can work, maybe direct his own movies. But it seems like with episode five, almost ruining Lucasfilm, he got really scared about that. And then that's why episode six, he didn't direct it, but 
it sounds like he he did a lot of hands-on directing even though he wasn't credited with it uh, at the time yeah and uh we got ewoks which you know I'm a big fan of, i guess <laughs> um but yeah I, I wonder like maybe if he ne- if that experience never happened i think he would have continued to make his own movies while growing lucasfilm the studio and then let someone let more people get into star wars along the way but yeah mm-hmm. it turned out the way it did okay the last thing i want to I want to talk about and like I know I've already brought it up so this is just me like talking about a thing we've already talked about but like I cannot get over the end of the hidden fortress feeling so much like the force ghost scene from I want to say episode six yeah at the end of return of the jedi Mm. yes did you guys get that impression at all or am I like fully projecting I'll explain what I mean but like did you guys get that at all so you mean when when the the two peasants arrive at the castle and the the princess is sitting on her throne and she she's all made up in her gear and then uh, the general is in his full army regalia and stuff like that and you don't you basically don't recognize them and they're all but they're all sitting there sort of overlooking on everything. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I sort of see it. I I, I definitely see where the once again like here's the idea. How do we sprinkle the crumbs? And this is what it eventually becomes in Star Wars as an inspiration. I definitely see that, but I I didn't really feel very force ghosty. I don't know. Like how how did you feel that way? So to me, like that scene, it mostly comes out of nowhere because the this the entire story has basically. I mean, it's definitely wrapped up by that point but it wraps up very quickly and then they end up in the court they basically just wake up there and all of a sudden there's these three characters they've been following the whole time but now they're all regal and it feels like a dream and then they eventually leave and like go on to something else but like there's these three characters who are clearly you know have been important in the movie, but also Akira Kurosawa is saying these are the three most important characters in this movie, by by the way, in case you haven't been paying attention, here they are. They just sort of like all say some cool platitudes and then send them on their way, which to me felt exactly like the role of Force Ghosts in Star Wars after the fourth one. You know, they show up, there's this scene that feels almost dreamlike in that like people are talking to ghosts and then they leave. And then they say some platitudes and they're done. And it just felt so jarring to me in the context of the rest of the movie. I mean, maybe it was just because the movie had wrapped up so quickly. But more than that, it was the movie wrapped up so quickly and then just like jumped into this weird scene that had nothing to, that felt like it had nothing to do with the rest of the movie. And then uh, the heroes leave, which... It just felt so weird to me. I guess when I was rewatching Star Wars today, it's not fully unlike the medal ceremony at the end, but the medal mm-hmm. ceremony at the end feels like it's still tied into the rest of the movie in like a little bit more closely than the scene of uh, them in the princess's court at the end of the Hidden Fortress did. Uh, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I, I'd say it's. Uh... I mean, I think given that we've seen them, I've seen the movie so many times, it feels very natural. But I think maybe if I was watching the movie for the first time, it'd feel a little weird that like they're set up as the poor rebels the whole time. And then in the last two minutes, they're given this massive like ceremony where they're just giving medals to these guys. And if it, it does feel 
like without the context of everything else, it does feel kind of like a very sudden and like oddly different scene thematically compared to everything else to cap mm-hmm. the movie off. But I, I, to me, that I think it did. So that's why it did really remind me. I think those scenes are very connected to the the one from uh, the Hidden Fortress and Star Wars. But I see what you mean when the Force Ghost too, like the the kind of looking on aspect. Well, especially because I saw two of the three of those characters as direct analogs to Obi-Wan mm. and Darth Vader, kind of, who are yeah, yeah. the Force Ghosts who come up in later movies. So, yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's all of my notes. Did any of you guys have anything you still wanted to say about the Hidden Fortress and Star Wars? Uh, there's lots of talk about the Clone Wars in Star Wars that I forgot about that, like, they don't talk about what it means at all. They're like, oh, yes, I fought in the Clone Wars. And like, what's that? Oh, yes, I remember those days. (laughs) It's like, what is going on here? And then it's clearly the basis of the animated show that took place 40 years after this movie was made. And they finally explained what that was. So it's very interesting that they, they took two lines out of this movie. And are like, you know what? We're going to make a whole TV show about this. It actually reminds me a lot of uh, our last episode that we released was on John Wick four. And in John Wick four, there's uh, Clancy Brown has his character is just constantly like walking around being dour and saying, the old laws say this, it is written in the laws as <laughs> is custom. Laws. You know, <laughs> constantly just saying things, just saying words. And that's kind of what a lot of this movie feels. Not a lot of this movie, but there's definitely like plenty of things sprinkled into A New Hope that are exactly that. Like Obi-Wan saying, ah, yes, I fought in the Clone Wars. Your father was there too. Uh, he was a he was a good he was a good person to have around during the Clone Wars. And like, we don't learn what the Clone Wars are, but we know that Obi-Wan was there. And so was yep. uh, Daddy Skywalker, I guess. Uh, and yeah. maybe that's where Skywalker, that maybe that's where Skywalker Sr. died. Maybe, we don't know. Maybe we'll find out in the next movie. <laughs> I love lines like that, personally. I think it's something the sequel trilogy really, really missed is that, because there, there was episode four, obviously they don't get into the politics and like world building as much as like the prequel trilogy but there's a couple like really well um well written moments there's that there's that scene where he's talking about the clone wars and the the past of the jedi and then there's the scene on the death star where grand moff tarkin talks about how the death star the creation of the death star has basically eliminated the need for the senate to exist and those, those are just two moments that are just really small hints in the script, but I think really help contextualize the, the setting of what's going on there. Despite that we only really get two planets in the whole movie, we kind of get an essence of what's happening in the galaxy at that time. I think like that's the reason I bring up John Wick as well, because like in those movies, a lot of the world building is done by random lines that you just kind of have to fill in the context for yourself. And I really like that about Star Wars. Like... There's that scene where Han Solo says, you know, is the Millennium Falcon fast? And we did the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs. And like, I don't know how that line was written in the script. I don't know if that was a badly written line or if like Harrison Ford flubbed it. But parsec is not a unit of time. So like, that's a very weird thing to say if you know what a parsec is, which makes it all the more fascinating of like, okay, so clearly the Kessel Run 
is something that is very long, probably longer than 12 parsecs in length. How did the Millennium Falcon do it in 12 parsecs? What a weird thing. That's kind of cool. And like, you know, I think that the the first Star Wars movie really excels at setting up a lot of that world building that's just so fascinating to think about, especially when you don't know the answers to it. Like, now that we know what the Clone Wars are, you know, that's fine, but it's not as interesting as when we didn't know what the Clone Wars were. And now that we've mm-hmm. seen the Kessel Run happen in 12 parsecs, cool, but, like, it's not as interesting as, you know, what does it even mean to do the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs? Yeah, I I yeah. still, I think that's, I think that's what, like, it's said so casually. I, I honestly don't think Harrison Ford really gave a shit what he was saying at the of time. Of Probably all sounded the same to him. I think in John Wick, they did it a little too much. I think in Star Wars, it hits the right amount because they don't do it that often. John Wick, I feel like like that. there's that one guy, his only role in the movie is to to spout random exposition that sounds cool. <laughs> and it feels a little overwhelming, I guess, in, in that context. But uh, mm-hmm. I feel like in Star Wars, it was just the right amount. But that might be because I, I know the context. So it makes a lot more sense now. Dakota, anything, any, any last words on Star Wars or on the Hidden Fortress? Hopefully, I don't know, just watch more Kirkusawa movies. He's really good. That's uh, that's my takeaway. <laughs> I'm still working through his movies. I've seen basically all of his big ones, but I'm, I'm very excited to keep watching other ones because he's fantastic. I know on, on a previous podcast, like not a previous episode of this podcast, but like way, way long ago, I, I said to my co-host, I'm gonna do a I'm gonna do a series where I review every Magnificent Seven slash Seven Samurai movie over the course of our, our show. And we didn't do it. That would that, that might be that might be another episode of this series where we can talk about the Magnificent Seven and also the Magnificent Seven and also the Seven Samurai. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I just think a show. reason for Pierre to watch. If I had to watch the Seven Samurai movie, like, I, I want to say, like, 20, there's probably so many remakes, and then remakes that you'd have to, like, look up. I was going to say, there's probably lots of stuff, like, like for example, in a Star Wars TV show, like, small things that heavily reference Seven Samurai 2 that, like, probably aren't listed anywhere as well, so. I mean, it'd like. Be quite the journey. High profile remakes? I only know the two, because there's a Magnificent Seven and its remake, but, like, I'm pretty sure there's at least one full Wikipedia page on things directly inspired by or directly remaking The Seven Samurai. So it might be the most remade movie of all time, actually. I don't know that for certain, but like that feels right. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Well, anyway, thank you so much for coming on our show, Dakota. Uh, Now that we are basically at the end, do you want to, if if you want to plug your show again, go for it please do. Sure. Well, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, Jeff was recently just heard on the last episode we did. He, he did send in a voicemail of his favorite movie of the year, which was uh, nice to hear from you about that. But uh, yeah, you can check out ContraZoom Pod. It's available on all podcast uh, platforms, whatever you use, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Amazon, we're, we're everywhere. You can follow us on uh, all the social medias at ContraZoom Pod or just our website, ContraZoomPod.com. Uh, and it'd be great if you check it out. Uh, I, I love having you guys on 
on. So if you're a fan of this show, you've probably heard it referenced a bunch of times. If you listen to ContraZoom, you've probably heard Classic Movie Live uh, referenced a bunch of time as well. So uh, once again, I, I always love coming on. I really appreciate uh, the both of you making time for me. You guys are the hidden fortress to our Star Wars. We're the better <laughs> one, but you guys are the inspiration. I'm going to tell Rachel you said that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Pierre, what's our last word? Mm, star. Star. <laughs>